0: welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. When the news broke that both the women's and men's swimming programs at Michigan State would be cut in October of 2020, there of course was shock and sadness. Citing declining department revenues resources available in the early days of the pandemic, as well as an outdated pool, former athletics director Bill Beekman and President Stanley signed off on a news release stating that, quote, We understand that the news is devastating to our outstanding student athletes in these sports, as well as to their coaches. But with every thoughtful analysis, it became increasingly clear that we were not positioned to offer the best experience to our student athletes, either now or in the future, unquote. Enter the attorneys. Plaintiff's attorneys Lori Bullock and Joshua Hammock of Bailey Glasser were contacted by the athletes on the women's team almost immediately after the news broke. In an interview for this podcast, they spoke with me about their strategy behind a successful outcome for the case. Lori has successfully represented student athletes who face discrimination that's attracted national media attention. Working with Bailey Glasser's Title IX team, Lori has won a series of high profile settlements for female student athletes at eight US colleges and universities to date. Josh is her co-counsel in this case, and a member of the same impactful Title IX team at Bailey Glasser. You will not want to miss this conversation. Lori and Josh, welcome to the podcast. I can't tell you how excited I am to have you both here. So glad you could join me. Hello. It's great to be here.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: You guys are coming off, uh, um, I will just call it an amazing, an amazing uh, thing, a, a trial at Michigan State. Well, actually, it's not a trial, it's a case. case. Uh, and I I will talk a little bit about this in over the course, but give us a synopsis of where the case came from, what the case consisted of, and then where it ended up today.
2: Absolutely. So this case started back in October of 2020, if you can believe it, it's been going on for that long. and. Uh, group of female swim and dive team members found out very unceremoniously through a Zoom meeting with their athletic director that their team was going to be eliminated at the end of the 2020-2021 academic year. And so they reached out to um, myself and another attorney, Jill Swaggerman, right then and said, what can we do to stop this? So we sent a letter to the university, asked them, pointed out that this was going to violate Title IX if they moved forward with their decision to eliminate the team and pled with them to reconsider that decision, enter into a settlement agreement with us and, and do the right thing and preserve this, this women's team. They, of course, told us to go pound sand, uh, which is probably you know no surprise to anybody who has understood the progression of the case, but. At that point in time, we were left with no other option but to file our lawsuit and seek a preliminary injunction to prevent Michigan State University from eliminating the team at the end of the year. Unfortunately, we had a judge who did not apply the law correctly in the first instance, and so we lost that preliminary injunction. We were forced to go to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. The Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals agreed with plaintiffs. That the judge had applied the law incorrectly and reversed the case, vacated the decision, remanded it for a new decision. Uh, That part of the case, that appeal kept going on. MSU decided that they were going to try and seek a reversal of the Sixth Circuit within the Supreme Court. They were unsuccessful in doing so. And meanwhile, the underlying case moved forward. And so we were able to deposed individuals within the university, obtained their actual Title IX participation data, which showed us unequivocally they were out of compliance with Title IX. Uh, We ultimately, this, this summer in July, went back and supplemented our preliminary injunction. We were successful that time in getting the preliminary injunction, but unfortunately we were not successful in getting the team reinstated through that avenue Hmm. so we proceeded we were scheduled to be in trial here in two weeks um, after the supreme court denied msu the right to be heard with on appeal and denied their petition for cert Uh, i think that that is finally the thing that put enough pressure on msu to say hey let's see if we can find a resolution to this case and obviously it would have been a lot easier and cheaper to resolve this case in October 2020 when we first reached out. But what we were able to achieve in settlement far exceeds the bounds of you know, what we likely would have gotten in trial. Uh, the hard part about these Title IX cases is even if you are successful at every single step, there's no absolute right to reinstate a team or to any specific court. And so what we were able to achieve through this amazing settlement and what these women were able to do was put aside their own desire to have their team back, to be back in the water and say, what can we do to make things better for women at MSU for years and years to come? And so we were able to get an agreement from Michigan State that their participation gap would not be above 28 women for any two consecutive years and not above 16 women for any one year, which is huge. That is, to my knowledge, the smallest gap that a school will be held accountable to. Um, We were also able to get them to undergo an entire gender equity review by an individual that we will have a part in selecting that individual. They will come in, they will review every aspect. So not just participation, but the entire laundry list of Title IX treatment and benefit issues, their athletic financial aid issues, and then MSU and that individual will sit down and create a gender equity plan that will bring their entire athletic program into compliance by the end of the 26, 27 academic year. And so achieving those results, I think these women should be incredibly proud of themselves and they have made a lasting change at that school. But it was a very hard fought litigation. And I think that a lot of it, candidly, was the result of a lack of transparency among administration about what was really going on, what that was really behind the data. And just holding firm to the idea that they were not out of compliance, even in the face of their own evidence that they were and, and not wanting to have that egg on their face, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I just wish at some point in time, someone, either President Stanley, President Woodruff, you know, um, Bill Beekman would have stepped back and said, maybe we didn't do everything we needed to do. We didn't do our due diligence to ensure that we weren't violating Title IX. Let's take a second look at this.
0: Josh, let me ask you, just kind of give us a sense of where women's swimming fit into the department facility-wise as well as competition-wise.
1: Well, I guess facility-wise, you know, they had, I think, one of the older facilities in the Big Ten, unfortunately, Um, and that was one of the reasons that MSU gave for cutting the team uh, was that, you know, we need a new facility, and that facility is going to cost a bunch of money that we can't invest into the sport right now. Um, Now, the reality, again, is a little bit different than that picture. Um, MSU is investing a bunch of money um, in facilities, including uh, a rec center that will have a pool, likely a pool that would be fit for competition. Um, It's also, you know, it has invested or is investing substantial amounts of money in its football program and its facilities, right? There's like a $70 million football complex just for the football team um, MSU is building. But You know, in in MSU's mind, it can't devote a much smaller figure um, to help sustain a women's program. Um, You know, so I guess that's the answer facility-wise and competition-wise. I'm not entirely sure what you mean, but I guess just the the big picture is this is a team that historically has had um, success. They've had Olympians in the past even. Um, They've got some Big Ten record holders. They've had people uh, proceed on to, you know, national uh, championship competitions um, and to the extent it was thrown out that that you know this msu team couldn't be competitive this women's swim and dive couldn't be competitive and kind of that's the reason i think there's a bit of a you know maybe a chicken and egg problem or a self-fulfilling prophecy problem where if you don't devote resources to a program for years and years and years eventually you lose the ability to be competitive. I mean, that, it's true, right? If you underfund it and you don't devote the resources to women's swim and dive, you're going to attract fewer top caliber women's you know athletes, uh, you know, women athletes. You're, you're going to have issues in terms of training and uh, coaching and things like that. If you're not devoting the resources, you're going to fall behind in those things too. And eventually it's going to be difficult to compete with the best performers Um, in the sport. So, you know, that was at various times thrown out as an issue, um, but I don't think it's a genuine issue here. I think if MSU had been committed to this team and had devoted uh, the resources that it should have to the team, if it had put its money where its mouth is, um, this team would have been able to flourish for decades to come.
0: So, Josh, that sorry?
1: I was just going to say, and in fact, I still think that's possible. I mean, the the women's swim and dive team, their dream for reinstatement is not dead today. Um, And I think if if even today, if MSU devoted appropriate resources to the program, it would flourish starting out.
2: Yeah. And just to add to that, Karen, I think to put a finer point on the success of the team, even in the year that they knew their team was going to be eliminated, they still had athletes make NCAA championships in, from this women dive team, and they spent, sent five MSU swimmers to the Olympic trials in um, 2021.
1: That's- I also want to point out because we're talking about student athletes and not just athletes. In the year they were eliminated, um, you know, this women's swim and dive team had the highest GPA in the country. I mean, just an incredible accomplishment. Even kind of setting aside success in the pool, which I, I think we all agree is there. I mean, that's an incredible accomplishment that they should be commended on.
0: Excellent summary and uh, background. Um, as as someone who's worked in the Big Ten, you know some of these facilities have aged and their choices on which investments they want to make are often very much dependent on who's a revenue sport and who's a not a revenue sport. Had, had Michigan State uh, dropped men swimming before or did they still have men swimming?
2: They actually dropped both at the same time.
0: Okay. Okay. And it reminds me a little bit of what happened at the University of Iowa a few years ago where they too tried to drop swimming because I think if I have it correct, they didn't want to pay their their portion of the rec center dollars to maintain the pool and also, you know, have their teams sort of rent that facility. Does that sound right to you guys? Or is that something you're not followed on?
2: No, that is one of the reasons that they put forward for eliminating those teams.
0: Okay, okay, okay. So, So we got a situation where pools are, you know, it's, the I can see how, I can see uh, administrators, well, pools are expensive when we really don't have the money, but by the way, we have 70 million for a new football practice facility. What do you think that Michigan State either didn't want to see or just really didn't get about how they were out of compliance with Title IX? And and Lori, I'll start with you.
2: Yeah, I think at the very core of what they didn't get is that they thought wrongly that there was some threshold and they wanted it to be either 2% or that the participation gap was not larger than the average size team at the university. And as long as they were meeting that threshold, there was no further inquiry that needed to happen. And, And that's what they were operating under That is the assumptions that they made prior to the elimination of the teams. So they had done their calculations. Um, They also relied on data from the previous years, even though they, they had more current data than that. And so a little bit stuck their head in the sand on that aspect, but there is no magical threshold under Title IX. And what the Sixth Circuit made clear in the standard that they recognized has existed since 1979 is that the administration has to look at the situation at their university because that's what the court is going to do. The court is going to look at the situation at their university and there's no magical 2%, there's no magical number that they are going to meet and then that means automatically you're providing substantial proportionality. Because what it actually is, is if you're eliminating a team, then that substantial proportionality number becomes, is that gap large enough to sustain a viable team? And oftentimes when when we're looking at preliminary injunction, that viable team is the team that they're eliminating, but that's not the end of that inquiry either. Hmm. So if if the gap was going to be 15 and they had no golf team, you know, university had no golf team, no tennis team, but they clearly had the interest and ability for a golf or a tennis team, then that gap of 15 is going to be too large. So you can't just rely on the assumptions of, you know, that if you have a gap that's X number small enough, no one's going to challenge you you know, administrators need to actually look at the facts as they exist at their own university. And MSU didn't do
0: that. Got it. Yeah. Go yeah. ahead, Josh.
1: I, yeah. I think big picture, that's absolutely right. It was kind of this automatic sure. compliance threshold issue that, that MSU was very focused on. But I think kind of as a sub-issue that's an undercurrent in most Title IX cases, or at least most that I've seen, um, is just how to count participants? What does it mean Mm -hmm. to be a Title IX participant? Um, And there's sometimes, it it seems, a difference um, in the way the school wants to count men's opportunities and women's opportunities. Mm -hmm. Um, And to to get a little bit more granular there, you know, if, if a woman shows up for the very beginning of a season, participates in a few practices, and then decides to quit, this isn't for me, is that a Title IX participant? Was that genuinely someone who should be counted as a Title IX participant? And if that happens, you know, if it's not happening one at a time, if that happens to 15 or 20 female student athletes or would be female student athletes, is there kind of an inflation problem um, in in the way a school is counting Title IX participants on women's sports? Um, People who aren't, you know, if you look at the Title IX regulations, the, the rule requires that, Um, to be counted as a Title IX participant, you have participated in team activities, been to practices, those sorts of things on a regular basis during the season. Right. So the the gray area there is, well, what does it mean on a regular basis, right? And the school kind of gets to determine that on its own. And there's a lot of discretion there, it seems. Um, And I think sometimes there's a tendency to abuse it, abuse that discretion and say, basically, any woman who shows up counts as a Title IX participant um, even if they weren't really regularly or participating on a regular basis um, throughout the season.
0: One of the places you used to hear a lot about that, maybe today there is some still, it was in rowing because women's rowing was added as a way to counteract the large sizes, uh, the football squads. And so anybody who showed up the first day of rowing practice got counted. Um, But I think, Josh, what you're speaking to is is uh, administrators and presidents are looking for a safe harbor. They're looking for a place where they can point to and say, no, we're good. You don't have to talk. You don't have to talk to us. But there's another layer to this, too. It's not just about participation. It's about a whole host of things. It's financial aid. It's the laundry list of all the benefits and and, uh, opportunities that they get in in the program. How did you guys look at that type of thing for the women's swimming program at Michigan State?
2: Well, and and just to piggyback off of your point, Karen, rowing is still very much where universities try and hide numbers, particularly in the Big Ten. If you look at the Big Ten rowing numbers, they are substantially larger than any other conference in the country. 110 women on a rowing team is not unheard of in the Big 10, which is Do
0: they have, do they have enough shells to do that? No,
2: they don't have enough shells. They're only allotted four coaches. They get a maximum of 20 scholarships for those 110 women. It's, you know, quite frankly insulting to those women that the school gets to count them as Title IX participants and looking digging down in the Title IX data, even for MSU, on average 15 to 20 of those women would quit before the middle of October. Because they stand in the student hall and they say, hey, you're tall, do you know how to swim? Do you wanna be a part of the rowing team? Right. And then the women join, go to a few practices, realize what it really takes to be a college athlete and make the personal decision that I don't have the time to do this, right? And so they quit the team, but even if they quit the team a week into practice, the schools are still counting them as Title IX participants. Interesting. Yeah. Yes. Rowing is still very much the the sort of problem child when it comes to padding. Um,
1: And even for for Big Ten schools in particular, because there's the the division between kind of varsity and novice participants, um, which kind of gives rise to a separate issue of are these really equal participation opportunities at all? Because there's nothing like a novice participant on the men's football team or the men's basketball team or any men's team um, so even by having this kind of novice team exist only for women's sports, or only on one, and it happens to be the largest women's sport, um, you're creating this inequity uh, that Title IX actually forbids, but that schools are kind of shading and hiding behind.
0: Got it. Got in
2: terms it. of the treatment and benefit issues, you know, the the athletic financial aid is a lot easier, right? You look at how much was given to men, how much was given to women, and athletic financial aid, what their participation in athletic, you know, their athletic participation is. And you can do those calculations very easily. MSU was grossly out of compliance with their athletic financial aid. And that's something they're going to have to address through this settlement agreement. Absolutely. But in terms of the treatment and benefit, you know, the way that here and, and in every other case that we identify those issues is we ask the women, what do you notice that the men's teams are getting that the women's teams are not? And not just your own team, right? We're always very clear with these women. I think it's really important that both administrators and college students understand that it's not the softball team versus the baseball team, the basketball team versus the basketball team. It's all of the men versus all of the women. And when you have 120 men on a football team that are receiving some special benefit that no other student athlete is receiving, those inequities start to become incredibly glaring, right? And so. You know, the women came to us and they said, well, you know, the men's ice hockey team and men's basketball team, they all get an iPad at the start of the season and no women's teams get an iPad at the start of the season. Uh, and, And that was one of those, you know, little perks that they notice. And with the prevalence of social media, everyone puts on their Instagram posts the day they walk into their locker room. These are the practice clothes I got. These are the shoes that I received this is my locker. they're so excited and happy, but that is the fastest and easiest way for an attorney or administrators to walk in and say, Oh, these are not equal by any stretch of the imagination. You know, the, the football team's getting specially made fleets for some games. Whereas we have women on the track and field team who only get two pairs of shoes for the whole season, even though they are running nonstop and may need more than two pairs of cleats. So, you know, our women came to us in MSU and said, well, we actually only have one operational shower in our locker room. And they've told us that the water is not potable. So most of us just go home with what, you know, we just change and go home and shower because it's really impossible for 30 women to shower with one operational shower head. Uh, they had the doors falling off of a, a bathroom. They they had so many examples just of their the own treatment and benefit inequities that they had experienced or that their peers had experienced. It was very clear to us that there was unequal treatment going on.
1: Yeah. yeah. Oh, and exactly. that's been
2: the case. Oh yeah, that's been the case at every university that we've had women come to us. They can always tell us you know, 15, 20 things where they've noticed, well, the men's teams are chartered to every away game and none of the women's teams get to ride in a charter plane. In fact, we're riding in a van 10 hours away to an NCAA championship competition and the men's teams are chartering a flight two hours away. Yeah. So oh gosh. yeah. Sorry. It, it's oh gosh. usually very easy for us to at least on a very surface level, come in and say, these are the inequities we know about. The nice part about MSU is they're going to have to expose and give that gender equity review individual the data so that they can dig into all of those inequities, not just the $70 million facility that's going to be only for the football team's usage, according to the football coach, Um, but everything all the way down to practice close, and who's getting access to tutors and scheduling, priority, everything.
1: Yeah, I, I would just add, it's it's sort of like, you know, like I said, you could put kind of a list of all the schools um, and just kind of randomly throw a dart and find one that's violating Title IX. On the treatment and benefits side, it's kind of the same with the laundry list, right? It It almost doesn't matter where you look it's it, it's always gonna be, there's always gonna be some discrepancy. There's always going to be treatment that favors men over women. Um, and it's it's almost, unfortunately, it's, it's almost universal. And again, I, I wanna tie it back to the point we made earlier about devoting resources to women's programs or not devoting resources to women's programs and then claiming that, well, they're not successful enough to continue. How much more likely are you to, to have a successful program when you get the best gear, when you get the best coaching, when you're chartering flights instead of driving in a van 10 hours, right? I mean, that that thing just by itself, you know, am I likely to win a game having spent 10 hours in a van versus a couple hours on a flight, a good night's sleep, and then go to the game? Those kinds of things deeply impact the women on a daily basis and impact their chances for success. So again, all of this stuff kind of builds and cascades um, to the the opportunities that women are actually being given.
0: Big 10 is one of two of the wealthiest conferences in the country, just signed a a $1 billion a year uh, television contract that'll start in a couple of years. They've already had a very lucrative Big 10 network that's been around for 15 years. Uh, this conference is not lacking for money. So how does this happen? How does this happen to a team that not, arguably, you know, women's swimming is a, an important Olympic sport in this country. It is played by hundreds of thousands of young girls in high school and on club teams. But you, you get to a point where you just got to feel it's almost um, deliberate the way that they just ignore them or, or minimize their uh, activities. And let me just say one other thing. They also come to the team with very small scholarships and very large tuition bills. They're actually tuition positive to the university, and yet they're given no credit for that. So, Lori, what are your thoughts about the wealthiest conference in the country clearly struggling with Title IX? I think
2: that what that says, Karen, is that they are not shy about demonstrating where their priorities are. Their priorities are football. Their priorities are men's basketball. They're sinking money into their quote unquote revenue sports, right? <laughs> and you know the, the deep dark secret of that is that there's almost no country, no university in the country that is actually making money off of their men's sports after they look at how much they're really spending. And so that right there is a myth that needs to be dispelled Across the country, that these are revenue positive athletic departments. They're not. But the bigger issue is that, you know, you have individuals who their priority is not Title IX. Their priority is ensuring the success of the football team, right? And that you can see that at MSU very easily. They have a men's football program that by any measure was not very successful this year, yet Mel Tucker got a $90-plus 10 10-year contract to continue coaching in that program. Any other coach probably would have, you know, would have been seriously assessed, but the men's football coach is put on a pedestal and treated differently from any other sport. And so they're going where they think they can make money, and the Big Ten is one of the worst offenders at this, but I think what's really important to remember is this is not the first time we're having this conversation, right? They had this exact conversation in the 1970s during congressional hearings when senators and congressmen from all over the country tried to exempt football from Title IX regulations, tried to exempt revenue sports from Title IX regulations, and Congress overwhelmingly said, no, we don't care if you're saying, you know, we don't have the money to have a successful football program and provide women's sports. That's not an excuse. You have to provide equity. If that was an excuse, then that completely guts Title IX. It has no meaning whatsoever. And so the law has been very clear that lack of budget is not a justifiable reason to be out of compliance with Title IX. And what needs to happen is a fundamental shift in the way that people think about sports. These are yes, they are athletic opportunities, but we're at an academic institution. These are learning opportunities as well. The benefits to the student athletes of being in a sport are immeasurable. It teaches them so many life skills. If you look at Fortune 500 companies and the number of individuals who are CEOs that were also college athletes, overwhelmingly, most it, particularly amongst the women, most of them were. And so they have to stop thinking about college sports as just a way to make money and as the academic and athletic participation opportunities that they are. By and large, that's what's not happening, right oh, yeah. They have the money there. It's where they're willing to spend. where it. they're
0: willing to spend it. So why don't presidents put more pressure? On athletics to be in compliance with Title IX? Is it a simple matter of incentivizing them uh, that it's more more than just how much money the team can bring in? Josh, I'd like you to take a stab at that. Why why can't we find presidents who value balanced equitable experiences as much as they value how much they're going to make at the bowl game?
1: Boy, I wish I had that answer. (laughs) Uh, And and I agree that that's the problem. But it almost in defining that problem you've kind of provided the answer they care more about the money than they do about equality i mean that's the message that these schools have sent and are sending now um and the reality is kind of as, as lori hinted to valuing um the, the kind of profit you can make on a sport more than the opportunity that it provides, I think is fundamentally inconsistent with a university's mission statement. I mean, we're talking about institutions, including Michigan State, that are nonprofits, right? They're not supposed to be driven by dollar signs. They're supposed to be driven by, you know, educating and and creating whole people and and building a a generation, uh, you know, that that comes behind and, and makes things better. Um, you know, and if you look at MSU's mission statement, it, it doesn't, I'm confident if we if we Googled it and pulled it up right now, it wouldn't say like to make money off of all, all our students, right? That's not what they're supposed to be doing. So, right. so to say like, well, you know, women's sports or, or women's swimming in particular don't generate a lot of revenue and therefore we just kind of can't focus on it or we, we don't think about it very hard. Um, is just, again, fundamentally inconsistent with what the school is supposed to be doing and what it sells itself as doing generally um, to the student body. So I think it's kind of this mismatch um, okay. between what is what a school's mission is and what it's supposed to be and this corruption that has come in, through the vehicle of athletics um, and, and is viewed only through the prism of profit-making and dollar signs.
2: And. Okay. Karen, I think another huge issue when you're talking about this, you know, unchecked power that exists in the athletic department is that not enough administrators, school presidents know how to actually look at this data for themselves and make a determination. And that in and of itself gives rise to so many of these issues. And I can, for example, I can tell you, we deposed athletic director Alan Haller. And by all measures, you know, if you read the press, he's very passionate about sports. I think that he enjoys the job. Um, but what I can tell you is that we asked him when's the last time that you sat down with your participation data and you did a Title IX count for yourself, not merely asked someone within the department to do it but did it yourself. He said, never. Hmm. He never actually taken a look at the data, calculated the Title IX participation gap for himself. The most he had ever done is ask someone else in the department, are we in compliance? Yes, that's the end of my due diligence. And when we're talking about university presidents, they're even more one step, they're one more step removed from that. So Most of the time in these cases, what we learn is that the university president asked the athletic director, if we make this decision, if we decide to cut the team, are we going to be in compliance? And the athletic director says, yes. Well, the athletic director didn't do those calculations themselves, didn't look at the data themselves. So while they're doing is rubber stamping the work of someone else, and that person has unfettered discretion of how they count, who counts as a student athlete, who doesn't count as a student athlete what that gap is, and then ultimately in the case of MSU, Athletic Director Haller isn't even asking, what is the gap? So he can make that assessment himself. He's asking, are we in compliance with Title IX? If the answer is yes, that is the end of his inquiry. Yeah, And then that information is passed along to the university president. And I would like to say that MSU is unique in this regard, but they're not, this is how, you know, university presidents operate. They do not see athletics as something that they necessarily have to be subject matter experts in and Title IX compliance is something they need to be subject matter experts in. They delegate that, but then the the oversight is not there. The due diligence is not happening. And, and, and so it, it just, it creates this environment where corruption is allowed to thrive.
1: And, and I think the point there too is, is that it's very hard to get the Title IX part right, to to ask all of those questions, to look at kind of the whole picture and see, are these participants that we've been counting really getting genuine opportunities? Are we doing things the right way? Are we giving them equal opportunities and equal treatment and benefits? Asking and and answering all of those questions is really, really hard, Um, especially as you move up the chain to an athletics director and a president who have you know, a much even broader picture beyond athletics that they might be looking at. But it's really easy to get the dollar signs, right? It's really easy to understand a bottom line figure of did this make or lose money? Um, and so again, it's it's kind of the priority, um, you know, when, when you come to make decisions, when it comes time to make decisions for a university president, for example, there's this one piece I can understand really easy, easily. Are we in the black or in the red? Um, and then there's this other part that's really, Hard for me to understand, it's gonna take my whole day to kind of dig through all of these title line spreadsheets and all of this information. Um, and, and so the priority is unfortunately placed on that, again, that profit thing part. Yeah.
2: One thing that I wish universities did more was have someone not in the athletic department, double-checking all of those, those calculations, that information so that it can't just be reliant on the department to run itself and police itself because there's an incentive there to be able to do what they want to do money-wise, participation-wise, sports-wise, to say, yes, we're in compliance. So it's even a little bit more than asking the right questions, which cannot end with, if we do this, are we going to be Title IX compliant? Yes or no, that's the end of my inquiry. They said, yes, so I've done my due diligence. But I think that it would be really beneficial to a lot of universities to have someone outside the athletic department doing a double check on that information every year and, you know, save maybe one or two. I bet we could find every university with someone in a statistics department who would be more than happy to to run that information. Right. That's right.
0: Wow. You two are a wealth of information. I'm going to have to have you back because I'm sure there will be more cases that you're involved in Uh, First off, Laura and Josh, congratulations on an amazing settlement with Michigan State. Uh, I'll I'll put a link to it in the podcast notes about exactly what Michigan State has to provide going forward because this thing is not over and it's not going to be over for quite some time but it was a real victory for both you and for the athletes as well. It's a shame that it takes athletes to have to stand up to an institution that they love to try to get equal treatment, but that's where we are today. I congratulate you both on your, on your passion for this topic and also your expertise. So thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank
2: you, Karen. It was very fun. Thank you for having us.